0: Everybody, Welcome to the NFL Road Show. It is the last week now before football. At this time next week, everyone is going to be in training camp. There's going to be so much information coming at us every day. The opportunity to watch teams practice on NFL Network and places like that, and I cannot wait. And promise, next week, we will dive into all of that. The fantasy implications of what we're hearing, all of it. But I wanted to talk about something different this week. And it's not football-related, and I totally understand if you want to hop over to a different podcast now, I get it. But this week is the one-year anniversary of my dad's death, and I wanted to talk about that because I've been thinking about it a lot, and I did not talk about it last year. And around this time last year, it was almost all I could think about, obviously, but I remember at the time... As I went through the process of watching my dad deteriorate, knowing that he was going to die and searching for tools to help me help him, I remember thinking that I wanted to scream from the mountaintops the things that I was learning because it all felt revelatory because we do not talk about it. And I didn't feel the way that I thought I'd feel. And I learned so many things that I kept thinking, man, I hope people know this. So I'm going to share those things here. First, this is my main umbrella thought, we need to normalize talking about death. And I'm talking about the natural kind here, not the tragic kind. I don't have any experience with tragic death, so I wouldn't presume to discuss that experience. But I think almost all of us will at some point in our life experience the kind of death that I'm talking about. Where someone, either because of illness or age, goes through like a reverse pregnancy period where their body is preparing to die, where there are signs that that is where it's going. And I think that we don't talk about that enough. We have such a fear and a stigma attached to the subject to the point where we shield children from it. I think we think we're protecting them because it's too scary. In my experience, I think that makes it more scary. I remember when I was younger, I was in eighth grade when my grandmother died. She had cancer and that had progressed and then she fell and then everything progressed rapidly from there and she was taken to the hospital and we flew out to see her one last time and my mom or my parents took my brother and I to the hospital to go say goodbye. And I remember knowing that we were there to say goodbye. And I remember her looking nothing like my grandmother. And I remember being scared, and not just of her dying, I was scared of her. Everything about this situation was scary to me. The adults who were emotional, the hospital, which was like an unknown place, the way she looked, emaciated, thin, and it was quick. And we left, and I kind of felt like I was in a movie. Like this thing that you knew happened to other people was happening to me and I wasn't really in it. I was like observing it and I might be wrong, but I don't think we talked about it. We talked about how much we loved her for sure, how much we would miss her and we told stories that we liked about her, but this thing that happened to her to make her no longer be here, we did not talk about that and I wish that we had. Because I think that when we have gaps of information around big things like that, we tend to fill in those gaps ourselves. And for whatever reason, I think we tend to fill them in with our fears. And I didn't have gaps this time with my dad. I learned everything I could, I experienced everything I could. And as sad as I am that he is not here, and as weird as this is to say, that time last year that I had with him while he was dying, makes me smile as often as it makes me cry. It was one of the most beautiful and meaningful experiences of my life. And I want to talk about it. But I'll be honest, it doesn't feel like there's space for that conversation. Other life events, people want to hear all the details. Met a new guy, might be the one, tell me all about it. Planning a wedding, what are your colors? Pregnant? Let's talk pros and cons of epidurals. Dad died. I'm sorry for your loss. It's like a period without space for more. And I get it. I do that too. Like, questions feel intrusive, right? And so many experiences are different. And so often people are traumatized and mourning. So I'm not in any way saying that I have answers to how to better hold space for that conversation. But I do have thoughts about my experience. And I'm willing to share. And I know that when I was deep in this experience, I was searching for relatable experiences, for information about what was happening, for answers about how I could better move through the experience so that then I could help him do the same. And I know that the things that I did find made me feel better. It made the whole thing less scary and mysterious. I felt empowered in a way. Like this wasn't a thing that was just happening to us to be cursed and fought and denied. This was the life experience. This was literally his life experience. This was the last chapter of it, and it didn't have to be awful. So basic backstory, my dad had Parkinson's for, I don't know, what 12 years. And in a lot of ways, I'd felt like he'd been slowly leaving us for a while. Once a gregarious storyteller who never met anyone that he did not want to talk to about anything, and for however long, he slowly shifted into someone who sat there and quietly observed. It was because the Parkinson's affected his vocal cords, so there wasn't as much strength behind his voice, and I think it kind of got to be more trouble than it was worth for him to chat. And so there was that. And then later in the disease, there was confusion he started napping more, he was exhausted, and then he fell and he hit his head and we would soon enter the end of life phase. But that's the thing. That is one of the things that I want to say here. No one would say that. No one. The doctors were all experts in one specific thing, the brain bleed or the Parkinson's or this or that. And I could not get Anyone to look at him, the full picture of him, the information we already had about where he was with this new information incorporated. I knew immediately that my dad was not going to get better, but no one would say that. And I twisted myself in knots trying to get people to say that to me off the record, so to speak, so that we could then act accordingly. So I wouldn't feel crazy or pessimistic. I'd say things like, I know there's no way to know for sure, but based on your experiences, when you see this, right, like 800 qualifiers, you are off the hook. I will not hold you accountable. I need you to tell it to me straight. But instead, they offered us options of ways that we could medically intervene. Nothing they told us that we should do, just that we could, which is bullshit because how is that for pressure? Your loved one is here, and there's something we could do, and I don't know if it'll work, and I don't know if it'll have a lasting effect, but it might, and if you don't do it, your loved one is going to die. Even though, again, that's kind of what's happening anyway, but I'm not allowed to say that. And I resented that. I totally understood it legally, but I resented it, because all I wanted to do was what was best for my dad. And the lack of acknowledgement about what was happening made that endeavor a very lonely one. And I can't imagine how lonely it made him feel because I'm sure he knew what was happening. But how do you acknowledge to people around you gearing up for a fight that you might not want to fight? That fighting might not be the way you want to spend your last days. What must it be like to sense that you're dying and not have people talk to you about it? You know, tell you this is what's happening. It's normal. And we're here. And you might be scared, but we're here. And what do you think happens? And here's what I think happens. And I'm here. And I feel like that hope that never really felt real to me anyway robbed us for a time anyway, while he was able to communicate better of the chance to do those things. I feel like it probably robs a lot of people. I suppose the good thing that came out of all of that was that the lack of transparency that I felt coming from the medical professionals led me to go into full-fledged journalistic mode. I was Googling things like Parkinson's end of life and how do you know if someone is actively dying and putting all of my professional training to use to learn everything I could about the situation that we were in. And I found through those efforts, some resources that were invaluable. Most notably, a book that you should write down and go get if you ever find yourself in this situation called Gone From My Sight by Barbara Carnes. It is no joke, like 20 pages long, big font, purposefully easy to read. Obviously, people reading it are a bit overwhelmed, can't take in too much information. So, it is compassionately blunt and detailed. What are the stages of death? What will it look like? I literally did not have a single resource that was more helpful than that one book. It described exactly what was going to happen, and then that's exactly what happened. So when my dad stopped eating, for instance, I knew not to force it. I think this one's big, and it's probably a up for a lot of people, because obviously we all want to feed our loved ones. And again, we know what will happen if we don't feed them, if they don't eat. But the book and the podcasts that I listened to explained that this is not a suicidal thing, like the person deciding that they want to die. It is a natural impulse as the body prepares itself to die. I learned that food and water can make that process more uncomfortable physically. So when the person indicates they don't want food, that we shouldn't hysterically force it down their throat. (laughs) I learned that death mimics birth in a lot of ways that there's a labor period at the end also. And I learned what that looks like, the stages, which I found helpful because it allowed me to pace myself. Just like you know you're not going to walk down the street when you're pregnant and have your baby fall out, I found it helpful to know that the natural process of death would happen in an order that I would be able to recognize. So I didn't have to be on tilt emotionally all the time. Before those things were present, I could just be present to hold his hand and think about what that felt like, and kiss his face, and think about what that felt like, and sing to him, and listen to him hum along. After the folly, he had trouble talking. Words were hard, and sometimes the right one didn't come. He'd try to say something, and like the game spinner in his brain would land on a different word that was totally unrelated. And I could tell that was happening, and I could tell it was frustrating for him. But for some reason, he could remember the lyrics to songs. So we spent a lot of time listening to like Fats Domino Radio on Pandora or Otis Redding and he'd weekly chime in on the chorus and my mom and I would dance and he'd sort of smile and I remember thinking how crazy it was that he could sing when he struggled to talk and how this uh, nostalgic taste in music that he had seemed so appropriate as the soundtrack for that month or so. Those were the moments after the fall, where we were connected the most. And we're not a big music family either. When the music wasn't on, we would have the TV on or something, but he wouldn't watch. And I'd talk to him about my son's baseball games, but I could tell he wasn't really listening. He was somewhere else. And I will always wonder where that was. Um, I believe, and I know that we're all different in this department, and I only really landed on this belief during this process, so take it for what it's worth, I believe that he was kind of between two worlds, that the veil, so to speak, was thin for him at that time, and that his loved ones on the other side were with him too. I hope that's the case anyway. I like that thought, that he's with his mom and his siblings and my mom's mom and dad, all the people who loved him in life, and even his dad, who I'm sure loved him, but to my understanding did not act like it. I like the idea of them reconnecting and understanding and maybe healing. I don't think I'm just making up a fairy tale because it suits me and makes a bad thing better. I listened to a lot of podcasts by hospice workers and death doulas, and they told similar stories of people at the end of their life fixating on a spot and saying things that led them to believe that they saw someone there. There was one story in particular that I couldn't get out of my head um, about a little boy who was sitting on his grandmother's lap. His mom had already passed. And he opened his eyes wide minutes before he died. And he pointed and said, mom. And then he stared at that corner of the room until he was gone.
1: And nothing like that happened with my dad.
0: But I sensed that we weren't alone. I sensed that he didn't feel alone. And I took comfort in the feeling that I had that he was going somewhere else. Somewhere I wouldn't be able to see him, but somewhere he would still be. That's actually where the title of the book comes from Gone from My Sight. A poem I read at my dad's memorial service about a ship that sets sail and gets smaller and smaller as it gets farther away from you. But of course, the ship doesn't actually get smaller, it just looks smaller from where you are. And then the part of the poem that gets me every time. And just at the moment when someone at my side says, There, she is gone, there are other eyes watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad shout.
1: Here she comes. I read that poem and I listened to stories about hospice workers and I couldn't
0: get them out of my head during this time. I felt in my gut and my heart that that's what was happening, that that's what it was to die. And I knew that his body didn't serve him anymore. And that made it easier for me to hold him in his body and cheer for him as he did the hard work of leaving it. And I'm so grateful that my life had taken a turn prior to that and that I was off the hamster wheel of constant work where you feel like you can't say no and you can't take a breath or you'll lose your place in line. Well, I'd been shoved out of line. And in this case, it was a blessing because I had time to be with him and I didn't feel torn about it at all. I didn't feel the urge to bury my sadness in distraction. I couldn't have if I wanted to. He had my full attention and I had his. And it was okay to just be. That's all he wanted. That's all I wanted. Just to be together, holding hands, reminiscing from time to time, whatever. And my kids were there too. My brother and I both thought it was important that they continue to see him and talk to him and that we pushed them past the initial shock of what he looked like and how different he was to see that he was still pop pop and that they could still touch him and talk to him. And we explained to them what was happening. And we answered questions that came up. And when he came home on hospice, which is exactly where he would have wanted to be, my dad was a homebody times a bazillion. His door was open. And the grandkids came in and out of the room all day long. And when it came time for my dad to pass in the middle of the night when his breathing changed and we knew what that meant, my oldest nephew was there with us too as we sat with my dad and we all held hands and we formed a circle around him and we told him how much we loved him and how we were proud of him and how we'd
1: be okay. And as he left, we laughed. (laughs) Not on purpose. Um, So at the end, the breaths get farther and farther apart. And we were there like holding our breath like waiting to see if another
0: breath was going to come for him. And then a relatively long period of time went by, and we all thought he was gone. We didn't say it, but we all thought it. And I think we exchanged looks, and we were silently crying.
1: And then out of nowhere, he took one more breath. And we all started laughing. And that was it. And I love that there was some joy when he left us that our senses of humor were still intact in a very morbid and awkward sort of way but I love that he left with us all like bonding over an aspect of the moment and I felt lighter knowing that he wasn't suffering anymore literally I felt like I could go to sleep But of course, I couldn't do that until they came to get his body. And my favorite moment of the entire thing came when that happened. So first, they draped him in a flag, because he was a veteran, as they
0: carried him out of the house for the last time. That's how he left. And I know that that would have meant a lot to him, as his service meant a lot to him. And I thought about the symbolism of his body exiting the house, his house, that he had worked so hard to make into a home for us. That was his physical and spiritual home base.
1: And then we all went out to see him drive away. But we didn't just stand there. We did the wave. Because that's what we did in my house when one of us left our house. I don't remember when
0: it started, but it had been kind of a thing in our family for a long time. One of us would leave and the other people there would stand shoulder to shoulder and laugh and do the wave until that person had driven away. And we did it as they drove away with my dad, my mom and me and my brother and his wife and his son and my husband, looking like lunatics, I'm sure, to the people from the funeral
1: home, but we didn't care because our dad was leaving and this was how he would have wanted us to say goodbye. My dad was the best. He was kind, and he was unconditionally supportive. And that propped me up to take wild swings.
0: I believed as he believed that if anyone could do something, I could do it.
1: And he loved me in a way that made it clear that he'd still love me if I didn't do it. And God, those of us who are parents know how hard that message can be to balance. You can do it,
0: but you don't have to. I don't define you this way. One of the last things that I remember him saying to me, um, we were talking, actually, I have no idea what we were talking about. I know what I was probably thinking about, because it was pretty much all I thought about. um, And that is how many things weren't going right in my life. Aspects of my life that I'd worked hard to control had started to feel out of control. And I was sad and I was disoriented.
1: And he goes, that's my girl changing the world. And it felt like a gut punch because I specifically felt like I wasn't. And I was really frustrated about that. And I thought that that spinner wheel that I'd talked about earlier had just landed on the wrong phrase. But the more I think about it, I focus on the fact that that phrase was cued in his brain, because that's how he saw me. And how freaking lucky am I for that? And I know I'm lucky that I feel peace this week,
0: and that I'm not traumatized by the memories of what happened this week last year. But that's why I wanted to do this podcast and share my experience, because I really think that a big part of that peace comes from the peace that I got from the stories that I heard at the time the relatable facets of them, the things that made me go, yes, that's how I feel. That's what's happening. And the information that I learned about dying, we were not caught off guard. We knew what was happening. We knew why it was happening. And we knew it was normal, that we didn't have to be fearful. Like, oh God, what's happening? That thing he's doing, what does it mean? That's an energy that changes the whole experience. And it doesn't have to be that way. And my hope is that we will find a way to communicate these things to one another more readily, to bring the subject of death and dying out of the shadows and make this whole thing less secretive so that it can be the best version of an admittedly bad thing. No one wants to lose someone they love. That in and of itself is such a lonely feeling. Maybe there's a way we can make it feel less lonely. I hope. Anyway. Thank you for indulging me. I know this was a massive left turn. And I'll get back to expected points added and fantasy ADPs next week as training camps get underway. I've done like five or six fantasy drafts so far. So at some point here, we're going to have to put all of the takeaways from those drafts in one place. So we will get to that not necessarily that but football in general again next week with the help of our outstanding producer andrew emmer marissa revis is the director of sports podcasts for sirius xm and steve cohen is the sirius xm senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting have a wonderful weekend everybody and i hope i'll see you back here again
1: next week Series XM Podcasts.